You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. If you are able to remain standing, grab your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 36. If you need to sit down at any time, feel free to do so. We have a pretty large portion of scripture that we are reading this morning. Genesis 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, the, and Basemeth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore Esau, Eliphaz, Basemoth bore Ruel, and Aholabama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Verse 9, these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, Ruel, the son of Basemoth, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Temen, Omar, Zephu, Getam, Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine in Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada. Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabamah, the daughter of Anath, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs, the sons of Esau, the son of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs of Temen, Omar, Zephu, Kenaz, Korah, Getem and Amalek, and these are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. Verse 17, these are the sons of Ruel, Esau's sons, the chiefs, Nahath, Zarah, Shammah, Mizah, and the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemoth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabama, Esau's wife. The chief, the chiefs, Jeush, Jalam, Korah. These are the chiefs of born to Olabama, Aholabama the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the sons of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The son of Lotan were Horai and Hemim, and Lotan's sister was Temnah, these are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Mehenneth, Ebal, Shefu, and Onem. 
These are the sons of Zibion, Aya and Ana, and these are the and he is Ana who found the hot springs in the wilderness, as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Ana, Dishon and Aholabama, the daughter of Ana. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemden, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheren. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs of Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. And these are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. Before any king reigned over the Israelites, Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhabah. Bela died in Jobab, Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Jobab died in Husham in the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hedab, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Mezrekah reigned in his place. Samla died in Shul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shul died, and Behalnan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Belhanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Haddon reigned in his place, in the name of the city, Pau, being Pau. His wife's name was Mehedetobul, the daughter of Metrid, daughter of Mezaheb. These are the names, verse 40, of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans, and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs, Timnah, Alva, Jathith, Aholabama, Elah, Penan, Kenaz, Temen, Mibzar, Migdal, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom. That is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you for all of your prayers that you were sending me as I was reading those names. God is faithful. We are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning. And as we have just read, we've come to a very dynamic portion, sometimes confusing portion of this great history of redemption, Genesis chapter 36. Aside from the difficulty that I just had reading those names... This chapter does present some additional challenges for us as we try to make sense of why it's here and what it means. At the very least, we know this is a major transition in the book of Genesis. From that, we can take from the surface. You may or may not be aware, but chapters and verses, right? Chapter 36, verse 1, verse 5, verse 7. Chapters and verses are things that we've added to all of scripture, not just Genesis, but all of scripture. And we've added that for the sake of navigation so that I could say to you on a Sunday morning, turn to Genesis 36. We added the chapters and the numbers in the original Genesis was not organized by chapters and verses, but instead the book of uh, the book of Genesis was organized by what is called generational markers or toledotes. A Toledot is a generational marker. A Toledot sounds like this. These are the generations of Noah. 
These are the generations of Abraham. These are the generations of Ishmael. And in our text this morning, verse chapter 36 begins with, these are the generations of Esau. And that is how Genesis is organized. It's organized by these generational markers. And as you think about it, we actually do the same today. If you had, and I had the privilege of spending a day or a week or a month explaining our entire family history, if we had the privilege of doing that, and that is a privilege to share your entire life story, we would not begin with chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. No, we would start with generational markers. My great-great-grandparents met in this place, and they got married, and then they had children, and, and then their children had children, and then their children, we would, we would use generational markers similar to what's going on in Genesis. And again, that is what is happening in this story. Moses, our author, is using these generational markers, these toledotes, to tell us a bit of our family history. And what's salient about these generational markers, our toledotes, is Moses is actually tracing a single offspring. There was a promise way back in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of man in the garden, when God himself said to Adam and Eve and the serpent that he was going to stomp the head of the serpent through the offspring or the seed of Eve. And so from that moment on, Moses has been tracing the seed He's been tracing the offspring and he's been using these generational markers so that those who are reading through the story would go, ah, okay, we're still looking for the serpent crusher. We're still looking for the one who would bruise his heel upon the head of the serpent. And so Moses has been tracing the offspring of Eve using these generational markers. And this really brings us to the first purpose of Genesis 36, of Genesis chapter 36. And it's the lineage of Esau. The lineage of Esau is the second to last generational marker in the entire story of Genesis. There are 10 generational markers, and this is the ninth. The 10th and final Toledot or generational marker comes in chapter 37. When we read in chapter 37, verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. And the camera angle at that point in the Genesis story will narrow on just those 12 sons. And then the camera angle will narrow even more on just one of those 12 sons, namely Joseph. And that takes us from chapter 37 to the end of the book. And that is it for Genesis. And so chapter 36, in short, is a major transition in the book of Genesis. That's why it is significant. Also, after chapter 36, it's important to note that we don't hear from Esau or at least his name again. This is the last time we'll hear the name Esau in Genesis. We'll hear from the Edomites. We'll talk about that in just a moment. We'll hear from the descendants of Esau, but this is the end of Esau by name in the Genesis story. So chapter 36 is an important generational marker and transition in the story. But what I want to focus on for the remainder of our time this morning is what's in the chapter. 
what's in the chapter. We're not going to go through every name and I'm not going to diagram where they all come from. But I really am interested in what is in the chapter, what makes it significant and why Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, put it here so that we would, as God's people, be reading it this day. And there are, I have discovered, and you probably have too, some indispensable insights and applications for the people of God in this chapter. So I'm going to bring three insights this morning to sort of map out our time. We're going to do a flyover of this chapter to discover its significance. And the first insight is simple and profound. And it's this. God keeps his promise to the rejected son of Isaac. God keeps his promise to the rejected son of Isaac. Chapter 36 is one big summary of God's fulfilled promise to Esau. Way back in chapter 25 of Genesis, Rebekah was pregnant and she was pregnant with twins, Esau and Jacob. And before they were even born, God made this promise about them. This is Genesis chapter 25. Two nations are in your womb, Moses says. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be, the, one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So God says that both of the twin boys will become nations and peoples. This is a promise, a a yet future promise to these two twin boys in Rebekah's womb. Nations and people will come not only from Jacob, the chosen son, but also from Esau, the rejected son. Much later in redemptive history, the Apostle Paul would comment on this very event in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 verse 10 says this. This is Paul the Apostle writing. He says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls she was told, that is Rebecca, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now in my view, Paul is making here in Romans chapter 9 a point about God's sovereignty over election, the election of his saints. But for our purposes this morning, it's important to note that Jacob, according to Paul's commentary, Jacob was the chosen son of Isaac, not Esau. Jacob have I loved, Esau I hated. Esau's prosperity in Genesis 36 is remarkable. As you read through the chapter, in fact, look at verse 6 and following. 
Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all, all his beasts, and all the property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob. Why, Moses? Why did they split up? Verse 7. For or because their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. There was immense blessing for both sons. Both Esau and Jacob were bursting at the seams with blessings like Lot and Abraham. And they needed to part ways because there wasn't enough feed. There wasn't enough land to, to house both of their possessions. They were bursting at the seams with blessings and more than possessions. Did you catch that? As we read through chapter 36, chiefs and kings came through Esau. Chiefs and kings would come through Esau's lineage. Verse 15 says, these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. Verse 31 says, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. Chiefs and kings through the rejected son. The rejected son. If you keep looking at Esau's lineage into the future, even beyond chapter 36, the Edomites who come from Esau continue to prosper. When Israel, you'll remember, when Israel had to be taken in by Egypt because there was a massive famine in the land and Israel had nothing and so they went into Egypt. When Israel had to go to Egypt for relief, guess who didn't have to go to Egypt? The Edomites. Edom didn't. Their storehouses were full. They were well fed. They were self-sufficient. They were blessed beyond measure. And they came from the rejected son. So then what's the problem? What's, what's the problem? What's missing in Esau's blessing? This phrase from God is missing. Esau, I will be your God and you will be my people. Noticeably absent from Esau's promise of blessing is the promise that God would be his God and he would be God's people. Esau had abundance. He had blessing, he had heritage, chiefs and kings came from his lineage, storehouses and resources, but Esau had nothing. He had nothing because he had not God. He had the blessing of God, but he did not have God himself. What a terrible tragedy to have storehouses of blessing from God, but to not have God. So that's our first insight. God is faithful to his promise to the rejected son. Our second insight is more of an application of inference. What do we do 
with the prosperity of the wicked. What do we do as God's people with the prosperity of the wicked? Esau was a man's man. He was a man with an appetite for hunting game. He was his father's boy. He was sharp with a bow. He was good with the ladies and he could command an army. Esau was a man's man. He loved comfort and he knew how to attain it. He had it going for him. Yet Esau was short-sighted. He could not look past the bowl of soup to see the promise of his father's land. And so he gave up his birthright for a single meal. He loved comfort. And as I said, he was good at acquiring it. The Edomites were set up. They were fat. Like Psalm 73 says, their bodies were sleek. They had no pangs until death. Their eyes were bulging out of their head because of the nutrients in their bodies. Chiefs and kings, land in abundance. I think another reason chapter 36 exists in Genesis is so that God's people then and now would be careful not to confuse earthly abundance with the smile of God. I think another reason why Esau's lineage and abundance is recorded in Genesis 36 is so that God's people would be careful not to confuse earthly abundance with the smile and favor of God. And look at me real quick. I say that as someone who has abundance. I have two vehicles. I have a home in Costa Mesa in Orange County. I have more than $100 in the bank, which makes me and you, if you have the same, richer than 98% of the world. And so I am speaking from a place of abundance. And what I'm not saying is that abundance is a sign of God's judgment. I'm not saying that. Abundance can be a sign of God's blessing. And we ought to be grateful when God provides. But what I am saying is that earthly blessing or, a, or abundance is not necessarily a sign of God's divine favor or hope for rescue. Esau proves this out. God was faithful to his promise to Esau. He became a nation. His abundance is known to the ancient world. Kings came from Esau, but what was his end? What was his end? He aimed at earth and that's what he got. And that was the extent of what he got. The psalmist in our call to worship says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. Have you ever been in this situation? As, as the psalmist in Psalm 73, 
As for me, my feet almost stumbled. My step had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But then the psalmist turns, doesn't he? Halfway through the psalm. And he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. They aimed at earth and that's all they got. So beloved, chapter 36 exists in the Bible so that God's people would not envy the prosperity of the wicked. So that when we as God's people are presented with the opportunity to sell our birthright for a bowl of soup, even if that bowl of soup would provide a lifetime of wealth and comfort, we as God's people would say, no. My only and greatest hope is not here. I am aiming at heaven. Even as Lewis says, if you aim at earth, that's all you get. If you aim at heaven, you might get earth too. You might not, but at least you get heaven. Or as Jesus taught his disciples, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole entire world, but forfeits his soul? Esau had the world, kings, storehouses, self-sufficiency, and that was it. Nothing laid ahead. Nothing after death. So our second insight is more of an inference or an application. What, what do we do at the prosperity of the wicked? How ought we to process this as God's people? Now, the third insight is also more of an inference or an application from this text. Here's our third insight. If God kept his promises to Esau, the rejected son, how much more will he keep his promise to us? As we read through all of the names and the descendants from Esau through, throughout chapter 36, it's easy to get lost in the bizarre names. And I, I chuckled to myself earlier in the week too as I was trying to pronounce these names. And you get lost and you're wondering, why is it here? Why is it here? But if you read through it enough, and maybe some of you already picked this up, there is a reoccurring correlation that weaves its way through the generation of Esau. And it begins in verse 1 and then courses its way through the chapter. And here it is. Look at verse 1 again. Moses says, These are the generations of Esau, parentheses, that is Edom. We didn't add that. Moses said that. Moses wrote that down. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. He does it again in verse 8. Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Again in verse 19, they are the sons of Esau. That is Edom. All the way through to verse 43, Moses records, these are the chiefs of Edom. That is Esau, the father of Edom. 
So what's the point? The point is, Moses, our author, is determined to drill into the minds of his readers then and now that Edom and the Edomites are direct descendants of the rejected son of Isaac, Esau. He wants us and them to know that those in Edom, the Edomites, are from Esau, the rejected son. The next question is, why is that important, Moses? Why is it important for us to know that the Edomites in Edom are from Esau? Here's why. So that every generation, every generation of God's people who would come after Jacob would see the preservation of the Edomites and they would say to themselves, if God was faithful to his promise to Esau, the rejected son, why would I be doubtful that he will be faithful to Jacob, the chosen son? One scholar writes this, quote, When Israel was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, a generation wandering in the wilderness, questioning if they would ever see the promised land or when Israel was bound up in captivity in Babylon and in Syria, Assyria, God's people would remember. God kept his promise to Moses. Rather, God kept his promise to Noah. God kept his promise to Ishmael. God kept his promise to Isaac. God kept his promise even to Esau. He is going to keep his promise to me. So chapter 36, in part, exists to grant confidence to God's people that God will be faithful to every single promise he has ever made. If he will be faithful to his promise to the rejected son, he will be faithful to his promise to the chosen one. Every single promise. And if this was a deep comfort and reason for hope for those who are in Israel, how much more? Beloved saints, new covenant saints of God, how much more should this truth that God keeps all of his promises be a deep comfort and reason for hope for those who are in Christ? Christ, the chosen son, the beloved son, true Israel, the one whom the father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. How much more should the people of God who are in Christ be deeply encouraged that God keeps his promise even to Esau? If God was faithful to his promise to Esau, the rejected son, how much more will God be faithful to his promise to his beloved son, Christ Jesus. In a group this size, I don't know where everyone is at this morning. It'd be impossible to tell. I can hardly tell where my heart is at from day to day. Some of you may feel like you're in a wilderness kind of experience. You feel bewildered by the last two years of life. 
Maybe your families have been rent in half because of politics or social justice or whatever. Maybe you feel like you're in a bit of a wilderness this morning. Maybe some of you are experiencing divine abundance and you are just wondering how God would just be so kind to you in giving you abundance. Some of you might feel like you're in a deep captivity of depression this morning, or you might feel like you're on a mountaintop of life's thrills. I don't know where we're all out, but what I do know this morning is that Genesis 36 is a sure witness. It is a sure witness that God keeps all of his promises. Genesis 36 is a sure witness that he will see his people through to the end. Genesis 36 is a witness that God's people ought not to trust in our earthly abundance. We can be grateful. We can be generous. But we ought not hope in it. It is not the witness of God's divine smile upon your life. Jesus said this to his disciples in John 6, and this is where we'll close. John 6, 37 to 40. Listen. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, Jesus says. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Listen, not storehouses here and now. That's not the promise. The promise is eternal life. It's Christ is aiming at heaven and He says it as sure as the day is long. Everyone who comes to me, I will not lose but I will raise it up on the last day for this is the will of the father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up. I will raise him up on the last day. Death will not be the end. I will raise him up on the last day. And the question is, will God, the father be faithful to his son who said that Genesis 36 is another Voice in the chorus of God's scripture. Yes, he will be faithful. And so, Paul says, what do we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? If God is for you, who can be against you? Who could be against you? If God is for you, who can be against you? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Beloved saints, may we not trust in earthly abundance. But along with the psalmist, may we believe this deep in our hearts, but it is good for me to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all of his works. God is faithful to bring about all of his promises and in Christ, he will be faithful to us.